Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, for the fact that it is so much more than a story or a history lesson or moral teaching. The Lord is living and active and points us to you, Lord. And I pray that whatever happens today, you would draw us closer to you. Open our hearts, open our minds to receive you. Amen. All right, here's our passage today. It starts in Mark chapter 2, and it starts in verse 23, and we're going to go through Mark 3, 6. Here's how it goes. It happened that he, speaking of Jesus, was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and he ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for anyone to eat except for the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against Jesus as to how they might destroy him. Okay, without a show of hands, this is completely on the download, just in your mind. Without a show of hands, how many of you like lose sleep or whether or not you're keeping the Sabbath very well? How many of you like could really define the Sabbath regulations from the Old Testament. My, my, I know Nancy could, oh, I know, yes, yes, I believe you. Um, but my guess is that most of us, most of us don't really agonize over keeping the Sabbath or not. And, and I gotta be honest with you, like, I am not one who cares a lot about religious things because they're religious. I did not get into pastoral ministry to have a platform to tell people how they should and shouldn't live their lives. Like, that's not what I'm about. But I am genuinely, desperately seeking God. And I'm convinced that God is revealed in the person of Jesus. And that's my main thing. Not religious stuff, but Jesus And I'm just as much on this journey of seeking God in Jesus as I hope many of you are. That's probably why we get along pretty well. 
And that's why I think the scriptures are just so important. It's why I pour out my life to study them, to preach them, to help us be a community that hears the scriptures well and hears the scriptures clearly and hopefully properly interpreted. And so before we, as a community, write off today's passage, which would have been really easy to skip because it's like, it's about Sabbath and how is that relevant for the 21st century? Before we write all of that off, I just want to take a few minutes and break down the importance of context. After all, without interpreting a passage in context, if you don't do that, it is so easy to make anything in the Bible say exactly what you want it to mean. And that is a train wreck, because <laughs> almost always we're going to make it say something untrue or partially true and usually pretty selfish. So maybe the first piece of context to remember in this passage is that it's written by someone. It's written by someone. The scriptures didn't fall out of the sky, and they aren't just random assortments of things that archaeologists found and put together. The scriptures are inspired and superintended by God who works in and through real human beings, real human authors who have their own unique personalities and experiences and grasps of language and their way of telling a story. I imagine if you had a campfire and you're hanging out with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they were telling a story that they would all have their own personality, their own way that they, they tell things, their own uh, nuance and inflection in their voice. Just like if you picked five people at random, we would none of us talk the same. So this story is more than merely like what happened, as if it were a video recording. It's also how it is told in, in Mark's overall telling of the story of Jesus. And how does Mark tell his story? Well, he sets this story about the Sabbath in a row of stories that are in what's called the controversy section. It starts in Mark chapter 2, goes through 3, 6. It's a bunch of different controversies. And, and starting at the beginning of chapter 2, Jesus says and does things that get him in trouble with people. He heals a paralytic guy and forgives his sins, and the religious leaders are all upset about that because they say, you can't do that, only God can forgive sins. The next story, Jesus calls this tax collector guy, Levi, right out of his booth. He's sitting there as a traitor to the Jewish people, and, and Jesus calls Levi to come and follow him. Later on, he has dinner. He has a meal with Levi and his tax collector friends and some of his notorious sinner friends, and the religious leaders get all ticked off, and they say, you shouldn't be eating with those people. In the next story, they observe that Jesus' disciples aren't fasting like they fast. So now they're mad not that Jesus is eating with the wrong people, they're mad that he's eating at all. And so these stories, you know, these, the, they're about who Jesus is. Jesus says that uh, when the bridegroom is present, for example, the attendants of the bridegroom can't fast. That is code for when God is present, people rejoice. These stories might be about ideas like forgiveness and eating with the wrong people or not fasting. They might seem archaic and irrelevant to us because, I mean, pretty much we eat with whoever we want, right? Um, we don't have all these deep demarcations between holy sites and secular sites. I mean, it's a 21st century America, right? So th these are sort of 
stories like, do they even matter to us anymore? Well, they matter to us because they're not telling you about how you should live your life. They're not telling you about who you should eat with and not eat with. They're telling you who Jesus is. That's why it's important. And I want to know who Jesus is. I want to know him better. That's why I preach these passages. And what they're saying to us so far is that Jesus is the one with the authority to forgive sins and to cast out demons and to, and, and to heal the sick and to redeem tax collectors. And they don't just tell about Jesus' identity as the Messiah uh, and the Son of God, but they tell us what kind of Messiah Jesus is. They tell us what kind of God Jesus is. That he's the kind of God who forgives people. Like, not just people who sort of screw up sometimes, but like people who are in deeply entrenched in a way of life that is evil and treacherous. That, that they tell us that Jesus is the kind of God who heals people. The kind of God who's not afraid to mix it up with all kinds of different people who are often overlooked and unpopular and unpowerful and underperforming. Oh, that's a real American. <laughs> right? Jesus loves the underperforming. I can't even say that as an Enneagram one, but you know what? Even I underperform in lots of ways. And so do you. And that's good news for us. And, and, and he, he reaches out and he forgives the unreligious. He's compassionate and kind and competent and wise and he's humble and he's life-giving. That's why we tell these stories. Because that's who is revealed in them. So when we get to our story today, we recognize that we're still in this controversy section. That's the context, the literary context. And, that, and, and so that we can bank on the fact that we're going to learn something more about Jesus and his way and about his message. And if you're here because you're, you think you're seeking God and you want to know him more, well, let's consider what this passage tonight has to reveal. So the story. Jesus and his disciples, it's a Sabbath day, they're passing through a grain field. Not the most unusual activity. If you imagine an agrarian society where everybody's got, you know, everyone's growing their own food, it's how they live. There's grain fields everywhere, right? Everyone's got, like a, you know, we have, we have some raised beds at our house, you know, you can walk around, but like everybody's got acreage and fields and stuff like that. And so Jesus and his disciples are walking through these grain fields, happens to be the Sabbath day, and some of the religious leaders noticed that Jesus' disciples were plucking some of the heads of grain as they go by. I mean, imagine you're walking through all this grain field, it's like this high, and you know, they're just picking some and they're doing this. I mean, I'm guessing they're eating it. Why else would they do it? Doesn't say they were hungry doesn't say they were eating. We don't know. But they're mad about it, right? So what, what's the big deal? Why would they be upset about this? And let me just quick overview on Sabbath. I know Nancy doesn't, you can tune out, but this is for everyone else. Um, the Sabbath is this 24-hour period, basically from sundown on Fridays until sundown on Saturday. And during the Sabbath, people, according to Scripture, were forbidden to do work, right? It was to be a day of rest, from the strivings of our labors, from the economic system. We're not supposed to do business. It was a day for renewal and worship. And in fact, the Sabbath is so cool, uh, it's unlike anything else in the ancient world in that you're supposed to let your land rest and your animals rest. And if you have servants or hired laborers, you're supposed to let them rest. Everybody gets a break. What a gift. The Sabbath is a good and generous gift. 
And in other ancient cosmologies, the gods, according to their mythologies, uh, the, like the, the neighbors that were around Israel, um, uh, Phoenicians and, and, and Philistines and Canaanites, they had other mythologies, they had other ways of understanding the world, and, and all of those other non-Israelite cosmologies, ways that the gods created human beings as slaves. It was viewed that humans were created to serve the gods. There was no such thing as rest, no such thing as days off, just a striated culture where the king basically was God's head and made everybody do their bidding, okay? So the, the Sabbath is a gift, and there's unlike, it's unlike anything else in the ancient world. And keeping the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. Nancy read those just a little bit ago. Uh, and, and, and like the other nine of the Ten Commandments, the commandment to keep the Sabbath is given as a way of, of helping human beings to flourish, to be rightly related to God and rightly related to each other. That's what it's about. Now, ultimately, the Sabbath is a sign. The Sabbath was a foretaste of something that was supposed to come in the future. Shalom, the rest of God, the peace of God, the kingdom of God breaking into the world. And, and, and that's all fine. Now that we sort of have an overview of what Sabbath is supposed to be, why were the religious leaders bent out of shape and claiming that Jesus' disciples were doing something illegal? Well, here's the thing. The law and the Sabbath, according to the Bible, is pretty darn vague. It just says, like, you're not to do work on the Sabbath. And of course, you don't have to be a lawyer to say, well, <laughs> what is work, right? The, the, the Bible kind of just, like, leaves it up to human common sense and, and wisdom, but the Pharisees weren't buying that. And the Pharisees made up a bunch of definitions for what is work. Now, keep in mind None of these definitions for what is work are from the scriptures. The Pharisees are just trying their hardest to follow the law of not doing any work. And I, I just want to, the Pharisees sometimes get a really bad rap. I just want to say they're really trying. I believe that they're really trying to help us follow God's law. That being said, listen to some of this crazy stuff. Okay, so they said, it was work if you walked more than a thousand yards from home, okay? So you could walk 999 yards, but if you walked a thousand, it was considered work. However, if you placed meals at thousand-yard intervals, so if day before the Sabbath, you want to walk 4,000 yards, every 999 yards, if you put a little picnic basket, then on the Sabbath day, if you walk to that picnic basket and you had a little bite to eat, then that restarts your thousand yards. Again, I don't know where they make this stuff up, but that's one of the things, right? So, so literally, like, people could, like, get around the law anyway. So that's one of the dealios. Another thing is that you weren't supposed to carry stuff. So, like, if you were doing the laundry and you had a shirt that you wanted to put in the closet and it's over there, you're not supposed to carry it, but you could put it on walk it over, take it off, and put it away. Isn't that crazy? So, I mean, there's all, all kinds of ways around this. Another fun one is, like, you weren't supposed to spit. Well, you could spit if you spit on a rock or a stone, but if you spit on the ground, then your spit could make an indent, which is like sowing a seed. It's making a furrow. Isn't that a word we use all the time? You ever make furrows? Yeah, it's like the thing you do for planting a seed. Or if you spit on dry dirt, it can make a clay, which is a brick-making thing. So that's, 
So you spit on a brick. Now, why they're teaching people to spit at all, I don't know. It must be a culture thing. Kids don't spit out there. But anyway, so, so you see what I'm saying? Like, there's ad nauseum laws for how to keep the Sabbath. None of them are from the Bible. I think they're trying to help people keep Sabbath. But this is the state that things were in. So Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field. They're rubbing some he- heads of wheat together, getting the grains out. Maybe they're popping them. Maybe they're just like... I don't know, I just some guy who, does, I just touch everything, so I could see myself doing that and just dumping them on the ground, but whatever it was, it made the Pharisees mad. They said, your disciples are doing work. What kind of religious teacher are you if you're not obeying the Sabbath? Okay, so again, let's just, I'm not assuming that you or even I care too much about the Jewish Sabbath observation or the minutia of law interpretation, but remember the context. This story is not here to teach you about how you've been doing the Sabbath wrong or to pat you on the back about how you've been doing it right, if that's the thing. The story is here to teach us about who Jesus is. And so what does this story tell us about who Jesus is? According to the religious leaders, Jesus and his disciples are involved in at least two acts of breaking Sabbath. They're picking heads of grain, and then Jesus heals this man's hand. The next part of the story goes into the synagogue. There's a dude with a withered hand, and he heals it. Notice that Jesus does not deny that these Sabbath infractions happened. He doesn't defend these actions as if to challenge the leaders about, here, you're interpreting the, ro- the law wrong, let me teach you how to interpret it right. He doesn't even go there. Instead, what Jesus does is he gives an example from the scriptures. And just an aside, the whole Pharisees' whole point against Jesus and his disciples are laws that are not from scripture. So I just think that's ironic because they're Mr. Like, scripture guys. Jesus is going to quote, a Bible passage, and he reminds them of a story from the Old Testament, from 1 Samuel 21, where David has been anointed king of Israel. If you remember your Old Testament a little bit, David was anointed king by Samuel, the prophet of God, but there was this weird time where Saul was still king of Israel, and David refused to kill Saul to take the throne because he's like, Saul was chosen by God, and I, who am I to knock Saul off his throne? So, so David, for a long time, was anointed as king, and he was a refugee. He was hiding because Saul was trying to kill him. And so David is on the run with a ragtag group of dudes, and he is hungry, and they're all hungry, and they come to the house of God, like a, a, a house of worship, and on this house of God, there's no food except for these special, like, consecrated loaves. There's 12 loaves every day that were set out to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and every day, uh, the the priests, they're the only ones who could legally eat that bread as long as it was day-old bread. So it would be like, like communion, like this isn't a meal, right? But let's say some hungry person came, and, um, and we're like, whoa, you're not supposed to eat it. It's like consecrated, but what the heck, like, you just have this bread. So David, because he's king, the high priest says, you know, I recognize your authority, and I'm going to allow you and your hungry men to eat this consecrated bread, even though it's illegal, and even though Saul would be really ticked off about it, and and, and they do this for two reasons. One is because it makes sense, like we're supposed to care for people, and they're hungry, 
The second reason the priest does it is because he recognizes David's authority as the anointed king of Israel, okay? Now, in our passage about Sabbath, Jesus is not making any sort of parallel between what happened with David and breaking the Sabbath. Like, they actually have nothing to do with one another. The point is that David, as God's anointed king, had the authority to eat the sacred bread, to break the biblical law, because he was anointed as king. And what Jesus is saying is that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, if David had the authority to eat consecrated bread, then surely the Davidic Messiah, the Son of Man, the one Daniel 7 points to as having the authority of God in himself, surely Jesus and his followers have the authority to rub some heads of grain together on the Sabbath day. That's the point. And and there's so much more to this passage. Again, I want to re-emphasize that the story of Mark's gospel is not to teach us how uh, that, that we now have the authority as followers of Jesus to just break all these rules whenever we want. That's not the point. It's much deeper, and it's much richer than that. The story is all about Jesus, and it's all about good news. So let's check this out. This is fun. Remember I said earlier that the Sabbath was a sign pointing to a day when God would come and dwell with his people, when he would grant them rest and shalom. That's like the truest sense of peace. Shalom is the peace of God, uh, where, where people have what they want and want what they have, where people have what they need and need what they have. Where In shalom, one person can't have peace and other people not have peace. It's a communal kingdom peace, okay? So that's what Sabbath is pointing to. In the Hebrew scriptures, there are a wide variety of ways that the prophets spoke of the day of the Lord or the day of the shalom coming, the kingdom coming on earth. And we've already heard that one of those ways uh, is in the beginning of Mark's gospel, and it's that the people would prepare a way for God, making a road smooth before him. John the Baptist came preparing the way, but here in Mark 2, 23, it says that Jesus was passing through a grain field and, and that his disciples began to make their way along. Interesting thing is that in the Greek text, it literally says his disciples began to make or to build a road before him. They're building a way. They're building a road in the grain fields. For Mark's Greek-speaking original audience who are familiar with these prophecies, the allusion to the prophets would be more than just like an Easter egg in a Marvel movie. Like, we're talking like, whoa, like right in their faces. Mark is telling who Jesus is. He is the sent one from God, the Son of Man, who will come and make all things new. But there's more. Jesus then goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath, heals an Israelite guy with a withered hand. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because the dude has a withered hand. Have you ever had a withered hand? Any doctors out there? Is there a, a, can you look in the, in the textbook and diagnose someone with a withered hand? Like, there's no, there's no medical nomenclature for for a withered hand I mean, you might have like uh if you looked in a medical journal you might find a deformed hand or a mangled hand or a leprous hand or a broken hand but 
but a withered hand? That's like not a term that we use. Withered was a term that the prophets used to describe disobedient Israel. Their hearts and their land was withered and dry and shriveled and hard. He said that because of their rebellion, their plants would wither, that Israel, which was described as a vineyard, Israel as a nation described as a vineyard, would be withered up. Sabbath, the day that was a sign pointing towards God's future rescue, the day of his rest, the day of his healing, the day of shalom. On the Sabbath, Jesus come in, comes in and restores a man, an Israelite, with a withered hand. Could this mean that Jesus, in Jesus, all that Sabbath was pointing to was coming true? I believe exact, that's exactly what this means. The, the way, the road is being prepared before him. By bringing to life the withered hand of an Israelite, he's symbolically undoing the curse of a withered land caused by rebellious Israel. And so what does all that mean for you and me? I've, uh, maybe you've experienced this too, but in my life as a follower of Jesus in different church settings, I've experienced the whole spectrum of, of Sabbath observance. You know, from churches that claim that the Sabbath is completely done away with to those who have shifted the Sabbath from a Friday to Saturday night to Sunday and, like, you've got to do nothing on that Sabbath except for, of course, pastors and volunteers and people who do stuff, and, but then it's okay if you do it, which never made sense to me. But um, what are we supposed to make of all of this stuff? Well, let's remember that the message is supposed to be good news. It's good news for us that Jesus is saying that, that, that all the things that, that the Sabbath was aiming at, the Sabbath as a sign, has begun to arrive with his arrival. Jesus is the kingdom of God in person. He's the one through whom we've, we have eternal life. We don't experience it yet in its fullness, but the promises have been unleashed set in motion. The kingdom of God is breaking in. If the Sabbath was a practice that aimed at Jesus and that Jesus has come, well then the Sabbath, the way it was observed, the way it was observed is no longer needed. In fact, to keep the old Sabbath, the old way with the old regulations would be to pretty much insult the reign of Jesus. It would be like saying, oh, we see that you've come, uh, but no thanks, we'll keep waiting for something better to come along. When I was in the Coast Guard, uh, I, I, tried to, I tried to get, well, I'm from Western Washington, from the Gig Harbor, Tacoma area. I tried to get like St. Thomas Virgin Islands out of boot camp and like all these kind of fun places. Guess where I got stationed? Seattle. I got stationed in Seattle on a 180-foot buoy tender. Um, it's actually a great unit. I didn't think it was going to be great. But I'm like right back in my hometown. And on the day I showed up at the ship, I was one of five who were new people on the ship. One of these guys was from South Florida. He came from a, a pretty a, a background where they didn't have a lot of resources. He had never seen snow before. He had never traveled outside of South Florida before. And he, when he found out that he was going to be stationed in Seattle, he found a, a picture in a magazine of Mount Rainier, because this is before the internet. So he had this picture of Mount Rainier, and he had it folded up in his wallet. He was so excited. 
I got to know him after just a few weeks. I was one of the only guys with a car, because again, I'm from my hometown, and I drove him to paradise, um, you know, up at Mount Rainier. Now, how weird would it be if we're sitting in the parking lot at, at paradise? This is like early September, beautiful, still sunny, but the glacier's there and the, the snow, he'd never seen snow before. How weird would it be if he stayed in the car, opened his wallet up, unfolded that picture of Mount Rainier and just stared at the picture? Look, the dude, like the mountains, right? No, no, I want to stay at the picture. See, the sign points towards something. The Sabbath and the way it was practiced and the way it was presented pointed toward the day of the Lord. And what Jesus is saying is like, the reason my disciples and I are going through this grain field and doing this stuff is not because I disregard the law. It's not because I think it was bad. Hell, I wrote it. Sorry, can I say that? Like, he's God, right? So anyway, wheels within wheels. But like, he's not saying I'm antinomian, like I'm not against the law, but something new has happened. Remember the wineskin passage. It's not that the old is bad, it's that it's incompatible with the new. The kingdom of God is breaking in, in Jesus' arrival. He's saying the Sabbath was good because it pointed toward this day of the Lord, but now the day is here. So put your picture back in your wallet and look at the real thing that's, that's among us. So now, we are no longer under the law. We don't count our steps to make sure we don't go over a thousand. We don't set aside Friday night to Saturday night as it was on the Jewish Sabbath. Not because it's bad, but because Jesus has come. And in fact, the early church spread fastest among non-Jewish people. And the Sabbath was not even part of their lives, even as early as the end of the first century. Christians moved worship to Sunday, not because it's a new Sabbath, but because Sunday was the day that Jesus was resurrected from the, from the grave. And so they called that the Lord's Day. And did you know that in the Roman Empire, where Christianity spread its wings, there was no such thing as a uh, a six-day work week or a five-day work week like we're accustomed to. You worked every day. And most people were lower class. And so they would work every day. And what would happen on Sunday is people would gather early in the morning for worship before the workday started. They would take communion. They would um, uh, listen to the scriptures. They would probably sing some psalms together. That was their hymn book. And then they would go to work. And it wasn't until Constantine Hundreds of years later, when he became a Christian, he said, you know what, let's start taking a day off. And he built that. So that's not anything inherently Christian or automatic about keeping the Sabbath. In fact, in Acts 15, when the Gentiles start outnumbering the Jews who are coming into Christianity, there was a group of Jewish Christians who said, we think that these people need to be circumcised and become Jewish and practice the Jewish stuff like Sabbath before they can be Christians. And the council in Jerusalem said, no. The only thing that we want them to do is to take care of the poor, to not eat things sacrificed to idols. You, you, you can read it yourself, but Sabbath wasn't part of the litmus test of who's going to be a Christian. I want to emphasize the main message of the text. Jesus is the good news. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He reminds us that the Sabbath was made for us. We are not made to be slaves to the rules and regulations and special days and prohibitions. 
Let that sit for a minute. You're free. Now, if you looked at your bulletin, you'll see Mark 2, 23 through 36, part one, Sabbath as sign. Next week's going to be part two, same text. And my sermon title is Sabbath as Gift. Because I do believe the Sabbath is a gift from God. I do believe it's worth exploring and practicing in the grace of Jesus as a gift from Jesus. Next Sunday, we're going to go and discuss the benefits of Sabbath, what it could look like in this day and age, in our actual lives. But I want to leave us with, with this. If Jesus has inaugurated, begun the kingdom that the Sabbath always pointed toward, then how does each day look different for followers of Jesus? How could we live with better rhythms of work and rest and play and worship? How do we ensure that we're truly living and not merely managing our lives? I know that resonates with a lot of you. How do we find rest with Jesus in this life that harries us and urges us toward an unhealthy and unsustainable busyness? I'm preaching to myself. See, my argument next week is that we're gonna, we, we need Sabbath, that it is a gift to us. And it's a gift because the Lord of the Sabbath has come and he's opened us up to freedom. I just leave us with how do we receive the grace and blessing and renewal of Jesus? So that can be your homework until next week, and then we'll break it down. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this word. Thank you for your servant, Mark, who not only recorded like what happened and what you said, but crafted it in such a way, in such a context that helps us to see the bigger picture of who you are of your identity, of your character. Thank you that you've come to rescue, to make all things new. Thank you that you freed us from um, any kind of uh, entrapment or slavery from the law and from ourselves. But Lord, help us to live into that freedom to receive your rest, to learn what it means to live in your grace. I pray, God, that you would just release creativity in our minds, inspiration in our minds. Open our hearts to who you are and what you have for us. Amen.